Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. When you think about a promise or someone who makes a promise, the reality is if we're going to be confident that this promise would be um, fulfilled or come to fruition, uh, we're going to look at the past in terms of how the person has uh, performed. So if they overpromise and underdeliver, we tend to not take the promise so serious. If they make promises and overdeliver, uh, we take those promises pretty seriously. And the same thing is when we want to understand the certainty of the word of God or the precision of the, or of the promise, it's best to have that word written out. And so this is where you have a contract uh, before a court of law certainly has more authority uh, than a verbal agreement or just a promise that was made. Well, the reality is this is what God does. God could just make an assertion, which he did and he does, and we can be sure because he's God that this assertion will come to pass. But God doesn't just make an assertion. He makes a covenant and he also puts this assertion in writing. And so when we look at the certainty of this promise, the author of Hebrews is exploiting this reality and pointing out to us the certainty of what God has done. And so when we look at the certainty of this, we might say, well, is there a way we can misunderstand the promise? Uh, what, what's the, what exactly is the Lord promising to do? And, and how do we know when this promise fundamentally comes to its fruition. So as we consider this, we'll see first, Abraham obtained the promise as a proof. Secondly, God's guarantee of the promise, it will come to pass. And lastly, the uh, manifestation of this where we have our anchor in our wilderness experience in time. And so let's begin with Abraham obtained the promise in verses 13 through 15. So it's important to, to put this in the context because, again, we can sort of lose uh, the full picture of what's going on in Hebrews uh, when we, you know, go a section at a time. And so prior to this, there was an exhortation for the church that the church needs to uh, be aware that it has grown dull in hearing. So he said sluggish, lazy, uh, not desiring to really discern or know the word of God. Uh, this is a struggle we have as Christians, as humans, as disciples of Christ, to truly discern the will of our Lord. Remember, the author of Hebrews went through different problems uh, that this church faced. Uh, there's dead works, and they need to exercise faith. We said just basically faith and repentance. Uh, they are those who are worried about hand-washing, you know, purity rites, uh, they're worried about laying on in hands, basically sending out or, or sort of uh, what seems to be manipulating the spirit when we look at this in Acts. Uh, the resurrection of the dead, maybe not fully having an understanding of the sufficiency of Christ's resurrection, and then also the eternal judgment where we said uh, these are individuals who may struggle uh, with 
whether or not Christ's work is sufficient to bring them through the final judgment. Remember, we defined a good work, and it's important to keep this in mind when you go into Hebrews 11, because this, again, is called to our attention. What a good work is from question answer 91. It's done in true faith, done according to the law of God, his standard, and it's not done according to the traditions of man. And so, in terms of this working out, we, we might wonder, well then, what about Abraham? What about the significance of this? Because it ends with the assurance that as we're not going to be sluggish and we're imitators of those who waited for the promise, you can understand the objection at this point where we stopped at verse 12. Somebody could say, well, when did they receive the promise? They died before Christ came. Uh, they were not those who received the promise, and Father Abraham never received the promise. And so this is where you can see the logic as to where Hebrews goes. And so now Hebrews is saying, well, let's talk about Abraham then, and let's address Father Abraham uh, as believers, and most likely as Jewish believers in the synagogue of Rome, as we've mentioned. Most likely that's a congregation that receives this letter. And so as they talk about Abraham, he mentions a promise that was made to Abraham. Now, when, when we just hear this assertion, if he stopped there, it, it still wouldn't be sufficient. Because we think of the first time this promise is uttered, Genesis 12, where the Lord calls Abraham out of, or Abram out of his household. He's a follow after the Lord. The Lord's going to lead him. The Lord's going to shepherd him. The Lord's going to bless him. And he's going to make him a great nation. So that's there in Genesis 12. We find some things going on in Abraham's life. We find the next significant chapter that records a promise is Genesis 15. We find in Genesis 15 uh, where the Lord now basically escalates the promise. So it moves beyond merely an assertion, words, or statements to now the Lord binding himself to a covenant. And remember, Abraham gets the pieces, cuts the pieces in half, and he would expect the Lord to tell him as a lesser king to walk between the pieces. Uh, this is where Genesis 15 is so beautiful and encouraging because the Lord passes between the pieces, basically manifesting his legs where we have the flaming torch and the fire pot, basically of, of this picture of God walking between the pieces of animals. He's going to take the sanction upon himself. Well, Genesis 15, 6 is an important verse because this is where uh, Abram says amen to the promises of God. And it was counted to him as righteousness, as the text tells us. Now, in terms of this, a commentator uh, who's written a whole article on this passage, or Genesis 15, which is a very helpful article, mentions this about Genesis 15:6. Paul, taking the Apostle Paul and, and how he uses Genesis 15:6, explicitly correlates believing in the heart and confessing with the lips as twin aspects of the saving, justifying faith. In other words, as we're joined to Christ, justification, sanctification, two distinct blessings, but yet they are two distinct blessings that are blessings that come to us by faith and the power of faith. And so as we're declared righteous, we also walk in light of the promises of God. So when Abram says amen to the promises of God, He's saying, I am going to walk in light of this covenant. That's what's going to orient my life. 
I will conform to your will and to what you desire. You are God. You are the Redeemer. I am the one who needs to be redeemed. We know Abram goes through some struggles. Genesis 17, we have the sign of a covenant. But the actual passage now that the author of Hebrews goes beyond all this. Because when he talks about God and this promise that God swears by himself. Now Genesis 15, we can argue maybe there's a, a reference there where the Lord uh, takes a covenant and he's the one who's going to uh, be the one who will bear the consequence if it is broken, Christ dying on the cross. But it's still not a swearing, in a sense a true oath formula that we would find in the Old Testament. We find this oath formula when Abram, or Abraham at this point, after his name is changed in Genesis 17, being called the father of a multitude rather than my father is exalted. That's the change that's going on there. But what's going on in Genesis 22 is where Abraham sacrifices Isaac, the child that means laughter, playing on Abraham and Sarah's reaction to the news, to the ultimate manifestation, laughter in the sense of cynicism, doubt, to laughter in the sense of joy and comfort. And so as Abraham takes his child and sacrifices his child, he, in his mind, this child is dead. And it's absurd. This is a child that's going to bring about the promise. Uh, so this child is not the one who secures it, but it's through the lineage of this child, the seed of the woman will enter into history. So if this child is cut off, it means the promises of God are cut off. But nevertheless, Abraham uh, takes a child, ties him on the altar, offers him as a burnt offering, or sets up to, set, to, burnt, to offer him as a burnt offering as he is commanded. And as he is setting him up to, to be lit and, and to be offered to the Lord completely holy, that's the point of a burnt offering, the Lord inter interrupts. And the Lord then makes a promise. <clears throat> he takes an oath. That as Abraham lives out his faith in Genesis 22, 16, that at the end of his life, the overall trajectory, what's the overall trajectory of Abraham's life? If God gave me the child of the promise, this child can be sacrificed, and God can raise his child from the dead. So it's important to understand how he exploits this in Hebrews 11, where Abraham could have received the child as he uh, basically did in a typology back from the dead. And so the picture of Isaac here is being set up, sacrificed, coming to grips with the sacrifice, understanding resurrection, and understanding that the Lord will establish his promise. And so it's in Genesis 22 where the Lord swears by himself that the Lord will bring about this redemptive promise. And so we might say, well then, what is the promise that Abraham obtained? Because clearly in this text, uh, as the Lord binds himself, he swears by himself, he's going to bless him, make him an a, multiple, a multitude of people, or he's going to multiply him, as the text tells us in verse 14. Remember the promise is going to be a multitude of nations, peoples will come from him. But we have in verse 15, he patiently waited and obtained the promise. When we hear that, we say, but wait a minute, Abraham died. And he doesn't 
really get the land, I meaning he buys a, a grave for his wife in the land of Canaan, but he dies a nomad. He doesn't see Christ. And so if he doesn't see Christ, how does he obtain the promise? Well, the author of Hebrews, as I mentioned, is playing on the very reality of what Hebrews 11 is doing. It's setting the stage for this. That as he looks upon the arrival of Isaac, and as he looks upon the prototype or the model of Christ, because what does Isaac do? Not that Isaac is perfect. Uh, we know Isaac, too, has his struggles and uh, his issues. But what's going on in terms of Isaac in this presentation is that as Isaac arrives in history, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 that they're as good as dead. So Isaac himself is pointing to a resurrection in and of himself as a model, as a type, as a reality. That the Lord is not going to leave his people as broken sinners who are destined for death, and that's the end of their story. The assurance here is that there is going to be life. And as Abraham sacrifices a child, why does he sacrifice a child? Because he knows that God can raise his child from the dead. So he sees a resurrection in terms of the birth of Isaac coming from death. And he sees a resurrection in terms of Isaac's deliverance from the altar. And so the author of Hebrews, as it takes the Old Testament imagery and this Old Testament uh, typology, you know, these models, these prototypes that anticipate the greater reality of Christ, right here Abraham obtains a promise. He sees the outworking of God's plan. He's seen the Lord make the covenant, he's heard the oath, and he sees the reality of this manifestation. And so going on then, <coughs> we have this assurance in verses 16 through 18, where now God gives us guarantee of a promise, and he starts exploiting and, and um, going through the nature of an oath and what this means. So when he calls attention to an oath, he wants us to understand the significance of an oath. And we find this in the Decalogue in terms of the Lord's name. We, we don't want to just hastily use the Lord's name. Uh, Christ himself warns us that, that we don't swear by Jerusalem, we don't swear by the altar, we don't swear by the temple, we swear by the Lord if we're going to take an oath. But ultimately our yes has to be yes and our no has to be no. But there are instances where there are oaths. Uh, the recollection here uh, seems to be going back to case law of Exodus 22, verses 10 and 11. We find here a, a, a reason for the oath. So Exodus 22, 10 and 11 lays out a scenario uh, where, say, I have an animal. I entrust someone to take care of this animal for a little while. Uh, I go to bed. Neighbor goes to bed. And they're entrusted with my animal. All of a sudden, during the night, the animal dies. Well, now, I don't know. Did they take the animal, hide it in their stable, or, or did they sell it? Uh, are they somehow profiting illegally from me and stealing from me? Uh, was this incompetence uh, that this animal died because of negligence on their part, and, and they actually owe me compensation for this animal? So that's the scenario in Exodus 22. So the way this is resolved is that both parties would come and they would take an oath before the Lord. 
And as they take the oath before the Lord, they would give testimony. So the person who lost the animal could say, how did this animal die? The individual would say, it was an accident. I don't know what happened. These sort of circumstances transpired. I did not sell the animal. I did not steal the animal. The animal did not die because of my negligence. It was just an accident. And so in that case, you know, it's, it's resolved and they need to be okay with it. Now, the purpose of that oath is because God would enforce it. So it's possible maybe the guy did take the animal, hide the animal, get some sort of back uh, room deal, and sell the animal and profit without telling the, the man he was supposed to, you know, take care of the animal, that maybe he has defrauded him. But the point is, the Lord knows the heart. And so when the Lord is called to attention, the Lord is the one who can prosecute what needs to be prosecuted, and the Lord will take care of it. And so that's the point of the oath. That's why you swear by something greater. A mere mortal, a man, a man's not going to be able to discern truth and error, but God, God's seen everything. He knows what happened. He saw it all. And so the point of this oath is that God is not above himself. He's not above his own rules. He's not above his own law. This is the beauty of the revelation of God's law and his holiness. There's no greater being than God. So God swears this oath. I will bring this about. And so as the Lord swears this oath, it means that if the Lord fails to accomplish his will, the Lord has to prosecute himself. If the Lord fails to bring Christ to death and raise him to life in Genesis 15, as that is promised, the Lord has failed. He has negated himself. He is a liar. He is not who he revealed himself to be. And this is a rather uh, incredible thing when you start thinking about uh, the implications of the oath and God swearing by himself and God uh, prosecuting this oath if he fails to do so. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to understand God meant business. This wasn't something flippant. Uh, God wasn't just pie-in-the-sky idealism here. God really was going to bring about this redemption. Now, as God does this, we have the assurance that there's these two unchangeable things in terms of the hope uh, that we have. Um, in terms of verse 18, uh, that we are those who hold fast to the hope. There's these two unchangeable things. And you can say, well, what are these two unchangeable things? Well, we have the promise of God is certain. That's what we've heard. So just the Lord making an assertion is certain. Secondly, we have the oath. So based upon that, we know that the the program that God has promised, his redemptive intention, his redemptive program will be established. And now when we hear this language of hope, you know, in our day and age, hope is sort of this pie-in-the-sky idealism. It might be some sort of, you know, think about Pollyanna having this, this foolish sort of optimism that's not grounded in reality. But somehow you just hope against hope that maybe things are going to work out. That's not what Scripture means in terms of hope. That the author of Hebrews is not telling us just to do this sort of Hail Mary pass and hope for the best at the end of it. This hope is grounded in something certain. 
So when we find this hope in Hebrews 3 verse 6, if we hold our hope, which is the substance of Christ. 6 verse 11, the hope of the end. 7 verse 19, a better hope. 10 verse 23, confession of hope. In other words, this hope is tied to the redemptive promise of God, the oath of God, and ultimately the accomplishment of Christ. And so this, this hope is actually grounded in something we have seen in history or for Abraham that will truly be manifested in history that God will do this. And we can order our lives in light of the redemptive promise of God. But he goes on. And he wants us to understand more that it's not just about Abraham. It's not just about the Israelites. Because that's kind of what he's been addressing. Here's your historic context. Here's what Abraham has done. Here's what God has done. But there's Gentiles that are going to come into the church. As we ourselves can't genealogically claim Abraham as our father. We can say, okay, well, this is great covenant history. It's rich. It's profound. But where does the rubber meet the road? This is where we turn to these last two verses in verses 19 and 20. In our wilderness anchor. I want to call it to our attention. It's a wilderness because what have we learned about the Christian experience right now? It's a wilderness time. It's testing. We're sojourning to the promise of heaven. We haven't arrived there. But like Israel, in terms of their sojourn, there's tests, there's things going on. And one of the fundamental things we can wonder about ourselves, am I strong enough to make it? Am I one who has the ability to persevere through the tests when I know my failings? I know my struggles. I know my temptations. I look at the history of Israel and they didn't make it into the promised land. So what fundamentally is my hope? And this is where the author of Hebrews wants to snap us back. It's where, again, I've mentioned that he sort of puts his arm around us, puts his arm around our shoulder and says, don't worry, Christian. This is your hope. Because he speaks of an anchor. Now, it's sort of rather uh, interesting in terms of how he uses anchor because the only other place we find of an anchor is where we turn to Acts 27, where it's literally a boat anchor, where uh, they're worried about running aground. They drop the anchor. It digs into the bottom of, of the sea. Uh, they tie off the rudder so as a ship uh, swings around, it only swings around in one direction, and they end up being protected through the night. And so that, that is sort of something of consolation, isn't it? That having this anchor set firm guaranteed their life through the night. So we understand the concept of an anchor. We think of dropping an anchor in a boat. This is what keeps a boat situated when it's strong, when it's set into the, the bottom of the sea, it's not going to drift away. It might go around, but as the storm comes, the boat's going to turn into the waves, and there's a greater chance that one is going to survive this and not uh, run, a, run aground and end up dying in terms of that shipwreck. It's a greater chance of that. But notice that, that the anchor is not in the belly of the sea. That, that would be a mysterious place. That, that would not be encouraging for the Hebrew mindset. That'd be saying, basically, your anchor's in Sheol. 
And you'd say, okay, great. The realm of the dead, the mysterious realm in the sea. How, how is that encouraging me? But the author of Hebrews doesn't allow us to speculate, does he? He says our anchor is set in heaven. But it's not just in heaven. Because we might think, well, maybe in our mind we could picture heaven. We think about the gates of the heavenly city. And we think about Jerusalem. And maybe it's just kind of set up outside the gates, right? Where we're, we're kind of anchored in heaven, but we're not really there. And he doesn't even just say heaven. It says behind the curtain. Now, this is a profound statement. Because behind the curtain is a place where the high priest would enter but once a year. And the high priest would enter this place only after proper preparation. This isn't a place where the high priest would dwell. This isn't something that a high priest would do uh, often. In fact, most of the time, a high priest would only do this once in their lifetime. So you think about the, the richness of this. The high priest, if, if one got the position of being the chief priest or the high priest, they might actually have the opportunity to enter into this place. But there's no guarantee if you're a priest. No guarantee. But here, we find the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Because our Melchizedekian priest does not just enter into this place behind the curtain. Our Melchizedekian priest lives here. This is his dwelling. Now, if you think about the typology in the Old Testament, that if the priest was not prepared, they had to drag him out of there. He'd go in there with a, a rope wrapped around him, and, and if he messed up or something wasn't right, he would be killed in the presence of God. And they would have to drag him out because they could not go in. But our Melchizedekian priest is so holy, so pure, so righteous, that he doesn't have to make a sacrifice for his own sins. He is a sacrifice. He is so pure in terms of the ultimate fulfillment of what Isaac portrayed as a model that Christ can enter into this place, dwell there forever. And this is our anchor point. So we're not just anchored in the heavenly city. We're not just anchored outside the temple. We are anchored into a place where even the high priest himself, once in his lifetime, would enter. And this is where we orient ourselves today. So the author of Hebrews is saying to us, listen, if you don't think you have a rich privilege in terms of the Christian life, in terms of the manifestation of the promise, Abraham believed and ordered his life based upon an assertion of God, based upon a typology of a resurrection. He didn't see the full resurrection of Christ. He merely saw a model of it in Isaac. And that was enough. How much more assured ought we to be when we know by the testimony of the apostles that Christ has been raised from the dead, and not only has he been raised from the dead, but he's seated in the most holy place in the inner sanctuary of the heavenly temple, where the high priest only entered into a prototype and not the full reality. And this is our anchor point as we sojourn through this age right now in the midst of the wilderness. So when we take what we've learned of Christ as a Melchizedekian priest, we say, but, but I, I don't know if I can bring my request before him. 
The author of Hebrews is saying, you're not just bringing your request to a priest who's sitting outside, who's going to defer to the high priest who might go in you know, once a year and, and, and make the right sacrifice. You're entering into the most inner sanctuary of the true heavenly glory before the great <laughs> high priest who represents you. He knows what it is to struggle. He knows what it's like to face temptation. And he's calling us as his disciples to flay our hearts open before him, to lay before his throne the stuff he already knows about us, and to confess it. To come before him and say, Lord, I want you to strengthen me and to bring me to this place of rest. The author of Hebrews is saying then, how do I know that I will make it through the wilderness? Why? Because your guarantee is not just an assertion. It's not just an oath. Your guarantee is that your priest, your Melchizedekian priest, resides in the most holy inner sanctuary that the temple merely modeled in the holiness of God was truly there. But you're into the presence of the true God and the true heavenly reality anchored in that Melchizedekian priest. And so the author of Hebrews, is, it's his way of saying, fight the good fight and the power of the Spirit as you walk by faith, knowing that your life is secured and redeemed by a priest greater than Levi. And so when we ask that question at the beginning, what is the misunderstanding of a promise fundamentally? And what exactly does the Lord promise or vow to do? Well, the misunderstanding of the promise is that we might think Abraham had something better than what we do. Ultimately, the author of Hebrews is saying Abraham understood the promise. He understood how profound it was that Isaac entered history. He understood how profound it was that Isaac was given back to him. And Hebrews is saying that that was enough for him. So the author of Hebrews is saying, don't, don't go back to Abraham and say, he had something better than me. Hebrews is saying, you have the resurrected Christ. That's what we look to. Not just an assertion, not just a promise, but an actual manifestation of the will of God exercised and done in history. Sure, we wait for the fullness. We wait for the return of Christ. But as he has entered history one time, he will enter again. As we are anchored in Christ, we will persevere in him. That's where we find our confidence. And so this is what the Lord fundamentally promises to do. When we ask, what does he fundamentally promise to do? He promises to bring his people into his heavenly city. Let us then be focused on who we are, what we possess. Our identity is not in ourselves but it's in our Melchizedekian priest who is so righteous, so holy, so perfect that he dwells behind the curtain of the heavenly temple, not the prototype, not the model, where even it was so glorious coming into the presence of God that a high priest would die if he was not prepared. But he lives in his most holy place. Let us flay our hearts open let us be vulnerable before our God and let us understand what our great Melchizedekian priest has done. He has secured us to dwell with him in heaven. Let us cling to that anchor point. Amen.
Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.